Hello. Uneasy lies the head who wears the BBC crown. Richard Sharp, the chairman, will have the sword of Damocles hanging over his head for some while yet. As the man who was supposed to judge whether Mr Sharp's appointment was conducted in the proper manner has had to recuse himself from the investigation because of a potential conflict of interest. Sir William Shawcross and Richard Sharp knew each other. Meanwhile, in its continued pursuit of perfection, that is to say impartiality, the BBC has just published a critical report on its coverage of issues such as taxation and debt. Newsnight had famously missed the AOL Time Warner merger, the biggest merger in history, didn't think it was a story. I'll be discussing that report with former BBC Newsnight and Channel 4 economics editor Paul Mason. Well, to add to Mr Sharp's concerns, the National Union of Journalists has announced that it will be balloting its members to see whether they want to strike over the cuts to local radio. Meanwhile, the cuts to the World Service continue to be rolled out. Last week saw the last broadcast of BBC Arabic radio after 85 years of broadcasting. The station's first show was in January 1938, as Nazi Germany and fascist Italy spread propaganda over Arabic airwaves about Britain's presence and interests in the Gulf and the Middle East. Some Arabic audio content will be published online. Just before the controversy over the manner of his appointment as BBC chair erupted, Richard Sharp was lobbying Parliament for more money for the World Service. I wouldn't bet on him getting it as there are plenty of others in the queue, such as teachers and nurses. And the IMF has just said that the UK economy is forecast to shrink in 2023, the only major economy to do so. Oh, happy days. This week in the podcast, we're going to look at that critical impartiality report in some detail with former Newsnight economics editor and left-wing thinker Paul Mason, whose degree was in music and politics. The latest report was commissioned by the BBC board as part of its 10-part impartiality plan. That was put in place in October 2021. The aim is to raise standards across the organisation and examine claims of bias. The board decided to conduct thematic reviews covering output in key areas of public debate to ensure a breadth of voices and viewpoints were reflected. The first one looked at the broadcaster's coverage of taxation public spending, government borrowing and debt. It was conducted by Sir Andrew Dilnot and Michael Blastland, who created BBC Radio 4's More or Less programme. They reviewed 11,000 pieces of BBC online TV and radio content, plus social media posts, from October 2021 to March 2022, as well as speaking to more than 100 people inside and outside the BBC. Well, the BBC's response to the review was, We note that the reviewers found widespread appreciation for BBC coverage of tax, public spending, debt and borrowing, and they conclude that they did not find evidence of political bias in this output. However, they also concluded that significant interests and perspectives in these areas could be better served by BBC output, and the review as a whole provides clear indications for how we can improve editorial standards and audience impact as a result. Well, to unpack some of the findings, I'm delighted to be joined by the former economics editor of Newsnight, who's also the former economics editor at Channel 4 News, Paul Mason. First, Paul, that music and politics degree. How did that qualify you to become economics editor? 
I mean, I speak as one who did joint honours in English literature and philosophy at Liverpool. You did a degree in music and politics. So how have you ended up where you are? Well, yes, and even my music and politics degree was done at Sheffield on the condition that I didn't tell anybody that it existed because I started off as a musician and I wanted to do something more interesting to me. So they let me do this dual degree. We didn't study any economics in the politics. Uh, So how did I end up there? Well, at the age of 30, I switched from music to being a journalist. And I, like many people, I talked my way in to business journalism at a place called Read Business Information, which was a 14, and still is, a 14-story office block full of small magazines. I remember that my first job was on nuclear power and dam construction. And were you terrified about that? Because when I joined the BBC as an arts graduate, I was put on the money programme. I didn't understand Invisibles, whatever. I had to get sort of the equivalent of a sort of ladybird book and read about it. (laughs) Well, I'm numerate and I hope intelligent enough to do what my first job was, which was sub-editing the tables of nuclear accidents every month. But that business journalism background, which I did for the best part of the 90s, was... I think a pretty strong grounding in parts of economics. I remember being told when I was working for a construction magazine, look, don't worry about whether their share price has gone up or down. All they're worried about is the order book. So the order book and the skills shortage and the the whole problem of things going wrong in construction, which is almost everything, was the operational obsession of the management. And so I came to the BBC understanding a lot of that But I was a business correspondent to start with and moved to economics when Evan Davis and Stephanie Flanders had both moved on. But when you read this report, I mean, it does, to be honest, it does really ring a bell with me about the way in which we were, a lot of BBC journalists are are unprepared. I mean, I remember going about a thousand years when I was editor of Panorama, which I was delighted when I was appointed, and then I had a horrible moment when I realised nearly all the major issues, this is 79 and so on, that are coming up all relate to the economy. Mm. I don't understand much of this. I don't have a staff that understands much of this. We're ready to go and do a whole range of social issues, foreign affairs. We're underpowered, to put it politely, to deal with the main issues. Did you feel that when you went to Newsnight or to Channel 4 News? One of the reasons I was recruited at Newsnight, they didn't have a business correspondent before. So there was a big push under Jeff Randall in the early 2000s to remedy the BBC's underpoweredness in business because they, Newsnight had famously missed the AOL Time Warner merger, the biggest merger in history, didn't think it was a story. And so having remedied that, we then got to the point of the 2008 global financial crisis. And what you had there, if I may say, was there were this Brahmin class of economics editors, both in Fleet Street and in broadcasting, who largely were quite content with economics as it was. And so people like Nouriel Roubini, who's an economics professor who had anticipated the crash, or even the historic work of somebody like Hyman Minsky, who's the economist who predicted many decades before the kind of Lehman Brothers crash, was seen by this Brahmin class of economists as pretty out there, pretty sort of heterodox, not really what you wanted to be talking about. So the crisis for me was an opportunity because me, with my heterodox background, my business background, but almost my political background in Marxist economics, I was quite unshocked by what happened. I think what helped me succeed was bringing 
that heterodox view, and I did it from the right and the left, I brought really almost people who were regarded as semi-crazy from the right in to talk about what the heck do we do next. You see, what I th- what this reflects on my own experience is, first of all, we've talked about not a lot of producers having real self-confidence in this area. But then another view, and I remember Robert, Sir Robin Day, a long time past, articulating this to me, which I thought was entirely wrong, was that, look, our job is to reflect the political debate as mm. it happens in mm. Parliament. And that if you... It doesn't matter if you think this is important or somebody's told you something that's very important. If it's not a debate in Parliament, it's not an issue. And you also had on top of that a wonderful BBC you know, political operation, which if you're a news editor wherever you're short of a story, they'll always give you one from BBC mm. Parliament. Yep. So the net result of that is the lack of confidence of producers themselves in this area, the dominance of Parliament and the dominance of the BBC parliamentary operation does mean that issues are seen in terms of the way in which they're debated at Westminster. Yep. Now, when you get a Westminster consensus... There's no debate. Yeah, I think the authors of this report have got that right. And they've said sometimes you need to report economics as economics. But I would take issue with what they say as well, because the bigger problem of avoiding, as it were, confirmation bias, the bias towards the status quo and the accepted framing of things. The other problem is that we we need to explain. And this is the other thing that Dilnot and Co are pretty strong on. As a journalist, with probably, you know, 15 years in broadcasting, six years since then, if I walk down the street and somebody stops me and they say, oh, it's you, Paul Mason from Newsnight, you're brilliant. And I say, well, what story is it that you, which scoop were you, you know, when I went to Gaza and stood, you know, under a hail of, you know, artillery fire, was it that? And they all always go, no, no, it's because you explain things. So the function of economics journalism is often... And what the public values is simply that you explain it to them. It's not just this, though, is it? Because, I mean, there is a problem generally. I remember finding out, using the expression in my early days about a three-line whip, and finding the vast majority of the public hadn't the faintest idea what a three-line whip was. And then you began to wonder, oh, crikey, where do you start? What do you explain? And, of course, you know, digital revolution has given us a range of possibilities Mm. of providing that information associated with news bulletins. And John Byrd, whatever you think about him, was also intent on that. But on the other hand, for a lot of people, that can be very boring. And you have to be very committed to the ideas and have the talent, immense talent as a reporter and producer to make it interesting. Yeah, well, I I would say that... The economics is boring until your local pub shuts down or until you lose your job or until someone finds that they have the right to build an, a house in at the bottom of the garden opposite you that you didn't know they had that right. In other words, politics does impinge on economics a lot, but economics has... It is part of people's lives once you can connect it to what their experience is. That's the first job. The next job is to say, but... Your experience as a wage earner and a house owner and somebody in a community is not necessarily the same as what economics actually tells us about. And the best example we have is, and it's referred to in in this report, is debt. They say, look, there's an assumption that debt is bad. Because I look at my bank balance, can see it on the screen in front of me, actually. uh, And I think, oh, no, I've got an overdraft. Oh, no, I've got a credit card debt. If I look at my mortgage, an economist tells us to think, you know, and even not even an economist, an accountant tells us to think, ah, yes, but you've also got 
a house. And when you look at your car loan, you've also got your car. So there are assets and liabilities, which the ordinary person doesn't think about. And that's very important when we come to look at national debt, because national debt has been with us since the Napoleonic War, and it's not bad. It's just managing it that can go wrong. Now, granted that you broadly share, very broadly share, the analysis of this report, and of course the BBC, I suppose, will be relieved in thinking in short term, oh, there's no political bias there. But what it does reveal is a deeply worrying inability to properly report on the major issues that face this country and to give a range of voices access to airtime. It seems to me central to that, therefore, doing that, is to give, somehow, have producers and editors and reporters with self-confidence. And you only have self-confidence if you know what you're talking about. So this is education. And, and okay, we could go back, we could say to schools and what's happening there and look at the people studying science and things like that. It's very depressing. But I wonder whether you're actually talking about a role of the broadcaster about educating its existing staff. In other words, a sort of... OK, you've been to university. Well, you're joining another former university. Mm. Well, I think you have to do that. But I mean, there's a, a recent example that I, I'm quite pleased with the outcome, and the BBC was influential here. So in the run-up to the, the first Rishi Sunak-Jeremy Hunt budget, the, the autumn statement, a number of academic economists on my side of politics, on the left of politics, made the point very cogently that there is no such thing as a fiscal black hole. You create it through policy. You could easily abolish it through policy, but the policies might not be the right policy. We cannot speak objectively of a fiscal black hole. That is a gap between what the government plans to take in tax and what it plans to spend in public spending. And by producing really kind of quite cogent research that was aimed exactly at the sweet spot of we can show you that the variables that go into creating gaps between spending and, and borrowing are more than you think, and less obvious than you think. And a whole bunch of journalists bought this. And you know what else? Because they bought it, in a way, Sunak and Hunt never really went hard on the whole... There's a fiscal black hole and we have to fill it. Because they knew it wouldn't work with the broadcasters. So I think that's a great worked example of academics in a responsible way, showing their, their working, journalists listening to them, and then that having an impact. And I think it could work. Remember, it's the it's the Conservative government that is borrowing. There's not a Labour. It's not a left thing. The Conservative government has taken us to it. And the Dilnot people would be very unhappy with me for saying this. The highest government debt since records began. Well, it's not really, but it's it's for a long while. No, and they would say compared to other countries. Our compared debt to levels, other, yeah. Uh, yeah but, okay, let's but, not go down there. Yeah, yeah. but... Running up a lot of debt is currently a right-wing thing. It is in America for Trump. It, it is here. And so we need to un- be able to understand what... It, it's just you know, the thinking fast and slow. The, think, the fast thinking, the emotional thinking that everybody does, including me, tells you that debt's probably bad. And the slow thinking will tell you, as long as you've got an asset and you've got the repayments under control and you can predict the circumstances of being able to repay, then... As the IMF would say, and I could point to you chapter and verse on this, the IMF says that's not worrying debt, even if it's 100% of GDP. And to get people to understand that is a public service. Now, we talked about the need perhaps for, uh, or I talked about the need perhaps for the BBC to have a sort of continued educational process for its own producers or whatever. But I wonder about the composition of the BBC board now. 
I mean, I'll come on to you a little bit later about the, the, the precise position of the existing chairman, Richard Sharp, but it's noticeably that he's made all his money in hedge funds and the number of people around him on the board understand being one way because they want to increase the earnings of the BBC abroad, whatever, shall we say, are weighted towards hedge fund people. And where you look on the board for representative of the trade unions or you look on the board for representation, really interesting representation of business, it's not as strong perhaps as it should be. No. I mean, does that now, in a way, this report will tell them, tell the BBC board that simplistic criticism of right and left bias won't run. Yeah. But there's a larger issue, isn't it, which is that whether people who have a specific uh, perspective on the economy are in positions of power and are not balanced by other views. Yes, and I have a bigger worry with the board. For me, the, any board is a non... It's like this. It's the non-executive directors and the chairman is a non-executive role. That's the only way, by staying away from operations, that you can exert proper fiduciary duty on behalf of the shareholder, which is in this case is the public. And what worries me is not that just that we've seen Richard Sharp informally intervene, but it's also been reported that Robbie Gibb, another Conservative appointee who was, let's face it, you know, number 10 Downing Street's main PR man under Theresa yeah, May. Although he'd had worked for BBC Westminster, to be fair to him, yes. Well, he had, and he was my colleague. And, and like me, I'm left-wing, he's right-wing. We rein ourselves in. Uh, we don't bring our politics to the operations of BBC work. You bring the ideas, but you can't bring the biases. And uh, what worries me is, you know, for example, there's no left-wing version of Robbie Gibb. I'd gladly step up if anyone's listening, but probably there shouldn't be at all. I don't think that we should see board members take interfering operational decisions. That's the that's a, the, the number one danger. And then, yes, it's what do they look like? It looks like a bunch of Tory hedge funders with a few liberal sort of liberal panjandrums thrown in. Well, now, with my years of working for the BBC, of course, I then have to say to you, well, remember Gavin Davis, hedge fund man, but actually long-term Labour supporter. His wife was, uh, I think, a key figure, secretary for Gordon Brown. You had Greg Dyke, who was a former member of the Labour Party, contributed to it and whatever. So what actually Labour did, some would say, is exactly what the Tories are doing. I think they set the pattern, unfortunately. I mean, I was a reporter on the BBC, largely in the years when Blair Brownism was going wrong. And my frustrations with their lack of candour with the media were pretty obvious. I remember Gordon Brown rolling his eyes at me while I was trying to interview him because he was so annoyed that the BBC had come into his treasury and was asking tough questions. His aides almost asking, when is the football on? Can this man be removed? And when you you think, OK, that's my job, but then you look at the top, yes, there was Greg Dyke, Gavin Davis, and a lot of decision-makers would have called themselves, I, I would call them Blairites, centrist Blairites from the whole PPE mould of liberal politics. We need to get away from both sets of kind of confirmation bias. I'd like to see the BBC just basically run from the non-exec side, on the board side, on merit. And how do you do that it, with journalism? Because every journalist outside the BBC has skin in the game of politics. I have got no problem with conservative-aligned journalists being brought in. Remember, Sarah Sands was brought on the Today programme. Robbie Gibb himself was a, obviously a senior conservative while he's working for the BBC. But what I do have a problem with is that Go back to what this report's about. It says, beyond the left-right, there is a kind of confirmation bias towards the status quo and towards, as it were, ideological common sense 
the the job of journalism is to punch open and you don't do that unless somebody tells you it's all right to do it and that indeed you'll be rewarded for doing it. I felt rewarded for busting up what I regarded as a little bit of a cosy relationship between professional economists and the BBC and banks and central banks. And yeah, I'd like to see more people do it. One of the perpetual regrets about my own career, a long-term coverage of Ireland, is that in the end we were always summoned by bombs Mm. and that because there was no real political debate at Westminster, I mean, you get briefed by the army who would say, I remember Brigadier Glover saying, look, we can't beat the IRA, they can't beat us, please, we need a political solution. Mm. We never did a programme which examined, for example, Sinn Féin's proposal in detail for United Ireland. Yep. which has major, major flaws as far as I'm concerned. But the point is, we never did a set of programmes. We said, well, OK, what would a United Ireland look mm. like? And by the way, are we working in this strange world that we think because people are on one piece of land, they should be united, when often water unites people and mm. it's in the back more than... But we never got there. What we did do very well, I think, on the whole, against a lot of opposition, is report on individual incidents. Mm. But because there wasn't that larger debate in Parliament, it was so difficult to get a wider debate going. And this is, I think, what you're calling in economics and finance and elsewhere, the debate is too narrow. Well, the the other experience I have, and I can, what I, the meta problem, I've never reported on Ireland, but the meta problem is that the BBC would like generally to think about things. And you, what your impulse in, in trying to do the explaining, the widening out is absolutely right. But I also spent three or four years working for ITN, which makes Channel 4 News. And the ITN culture is the exact opposite. If there's a hurricane in the Philippines, my impulse coming from the BBC was to say, how are the poor suffering differently? And was it caused by climate change? And the ITN impulse is, how many cameras can we get there by 10 o'clock tomorrow? It's literally, you could decry that because you could say it's almost like dumb journalism. It's chasing events. But what it does is if you start from asking what happened, who, what, where, when, why, and what does it, why does the public here care? You usually can't go far wrong. But if you start the day, as many BBC 9am meetings in my day started, what does this mean? You can end up, in the end, imposing a meaning on events that don't exist. And in my BBC career, I did see that happen for quite understandable reasons. Specialists on the ground saying, look, this is not what you think it is. But because everyone else is framing, say, an international story in a certain way, BBC would often override specialists on the ground. So it's swingers and roundabouts. Both the ITN approach has its weaknesses and the, the kind of BBC sort of, you know, I call it the PPE <laughs> approach approach to journalism, also has its downside. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, poor old public service broadcasting because it gets a sort of criticism or examination, others don't. But just before, I'm going to ask the last question I want to ask you about the chairman, but just before I get there, it's clear that public service broadcasting is on the retreat. Or rather, there's much greater competition there's ever been. And the resources available certainly to uh, Channel 4 and certainly to the BBC are diminishing relatively. Mm. Is this a worry to you? It does worry me that public service broadcasting is... The competition is sensationalist Fox News or CNN-type broadcasting and also now overtly politicised broadcasting like Talk TV and GB News. And I've been in the Talk TV studio. It is much better resourced than any equivalent BBC studio I've been in. But then beyond that, 
you know, I, I went to a school to talk about my career and talk about politics, a very educated sixth form, a state school. Obviously, not a single one of them watches news at all on radio or TV, but they don't even get their online news from the BBC. They, their primary portal is Apple News. So what are public service broadcasters doing to compete with that? That's the real challenge. And there's nothing we can do about that. We can do stuff about talk TV and say, hey, you know, this is not potentially a great idea that this has a license, certainly with GB News. But what you can't do anything about mass behaviour among teenagers. And so you've got to adapt to it. And adapting the public service principles means, first of all, stating what they are. Educate, inform, entertain, impartiality across a wide range. And that's one thing this uh, report gets really correct for me, is to understand that the impartiality now is no longer between left and right in British politics. You know, if you were to talk about Muslim finance, the specific forms of finance that Muslims can use, given their religious beliefs. I can remember when that was first reported. It was reported as a kind of other, wow, look at this, you know, ooh, there's a Muslim finance, you know, wow, you know, do we want it? For the people who use it, it's normal. And the same is true of transgender and transgender rights, and the same is true of the fact that Scotland, you know, is an increasingly separate polity, the fact that Wales will have a dehont system after the next Senate election. This is the reality, and one has to be able to be impartial amid a 3D nodal network of beliefs, not a left-right XY diagram. And finally, the chairman of the BBC is still a vitally important role vitally important, particularly at this moment we're seeing world service cuts, we're seeing a new media bill about to come in and whatever. In the light of the concerns raised about Richard Sharp, should he stay in the job? I'm prepared to wait for the report. Of course, now the person reporting has said that they know Richard Sharp too well to do it properly. Now, this is not an accident, is it? Because, I mean, I've seen, uh, well, if you look at the Conservative Home website, a real effort to get Conservatives to apply for jobs, chairmen of museums and everything else. There's been a real push to get one of us in a particular job. Absolutely, absolutely. But, OK, what's the wider problem? I'm prepared to wait for the report. If you said, I'm economic editor of Newsnight... I helped Boris Johnson get a loan of £800,000. You'd be out the door. One of my producers on Newsnight got, can I use the word bollocked? I hope so. Yes, Um, absolutely. Got bollocked for having a birthday party in a hotel that had just opened and all the staff went and the manager of the hotel spent a lot of time fawning over them because some of them were, including me, famous. And, And it turned out that the drinks had been provided free. And that person got bollocked for that and should have been. But... You can't have a different standard for the chairman and the staff if the chairman is poking their nose into operational and policy matters. And and Sharp has over the question of impartiality. And I think that the impartiality stuff is being used as a bit of a stick to beat certain outlets. Pressure is being put on them. We all know this. Look at Newsnight after the Andrew, Prince Andrew scandal. Sorry, I don't understand that. Just tell me about the Prince Andrew's well, camp. What do you think News and I did well, after no, that? No, I, it, it's, not, it's not the fact that... You know, I think it's, there's a general view that News Night ought to be a little bit quieter and less out on a limb. I don't think it's producing as many scoops as it did. And people would say that's a function of they, I think, would say a function resources. of resources. Yeah, but, they, you know, they, they, that's always yeah. true, but who decides where the resources come from? You mentioned the, the World Service yourself. Someone has decided that the World Service should merge with, with the news channel to the detriment, I believe, of both. And 
that's a resource decision. But if you trace the resource decision back, as far as I am concerned, it ends up with Sharp, not the DG. It has to be Richard Sharp because it, it concerns a corporate matter, which is the BBC's relationship to the World Service. It's not just a matter for Tim Davey. So, look, this guy, quite, look, someone's, the person who appointed him, that whoever was, remember, whoever was the, the culture secretary at the time, probably told Sharp, you need to do X, Y, and Z. Do it within the rules, but here's what you, we, you want. They're quite within their, their remit to do that. I think the solution to this is to depoliticise leadership of the BBC on the non-exec level. I'd rather have a bunch of people I'd never heard of and didn't know they were married to or had worked for key members of the kind of, you know, financial and political elite. We might, me and you might be out of a job in terms of talking about the, the political problems of steering this huge organisation, which after all, nine out of 10 times that it gets into reputational trouble is because of what its news and current affairs output does. Its drama is pretty safe. It's pretty good. It's pretty safe. Its sport is world-class. It's just the news. And so if you're going to, Mark Thompson, Greg Dyke, the whole lot of them, one after the other, George Hentwistle, my friend and colleague at Newsnight, BBC leaders live or die by what the news does. And so it's you've got to maintain... What is it? The sheen, the sort of the, the, the aura of absolute patrician impartiality. And I'm sure that Richard Sharp's a good guy. I've never met him, but he wouldn't be the first good person to be dragged into the mire by Boris Johnson. Let's face it here. It wasn't Richard Sharp who asked for a, for someone to guarantee a loan for 800. I mean, guarantee a loan for 800,000 pounds personally. I mean, that's a big thing, isn't it? So it wasn't him who did that. It was Boris Johnson because he can't manage his own his own monetary affairs. So, yeah, I mean, I think Richard Sharp should stay until the report. He should take a long look at the way he's run the BBC and ask, is that compatible with someone who is so connected to the existing government? And ultimately, those are judgments for the people involved. Paul Mason, thank you very much. And that's it for this week. Please do support our journalism. It's only £1.99 per month. Just about a small cup of coffee. And you can do this easily by using the link on our website and in the description of this programme on your podcast platform. You can get in touch with interview ideas and questions on Twitter by using at Roger or on Mastodon using at RogerBolton at MastodonApp.uk. Or you can send an email to roger at rogerboltonsbeebwatch.com. The podcast was indeed presented by me, Roger Bolton, and it was produced by Kate Dixon. The sound was by Clifton Bank Studios. And special thanks to Quinn Genty. It was a good egg production. Until next week, goodbye. <laughs>